Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey folks, we're now in week seven of the impeachment inquiry. As always, so much to make sense of. With the passage of House Resolution 660, the impeachment process has been formalized, setting the stage for the public phase of the inquiry. Meanwhile, House investigators continue to depose key witnesses. And the Justice Department has released its first installment of documents known as 302s related to Bob Mueller's investigation. I talk about all this and more with Ann Milgram on the Cafe Insider podcast. Each week, we break down the news and take stock of what's happening, and lately, it's been a lot. Today, we're making a clip from the most recent episode available in the Stay Tuned feed. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. So let's talk about some of the things that are interesting in the resolution. Then we'll talk about what the nature of the vote was, what the numbers were, because it's a mixed bag. One, it's very clear that lots of committees are involved. I don't think there's been an impeachment inquiry where you literally have formally six different committees who are involved in gathering evidence and doing some stuff. And this is a little different, right? Because you and I have been talking a lot about the three main committees that have been doing the work led by the Intelligence Committee. Judiciary, House Oversight, and the Intelligence Committee. And apart from those three, there's a Committee on Financial Services, Foreign Affairs, and Ways and Means. But what's clear is the show, the main show... Center court, as we've said before, is the Intelligence, the, the intelligence Committee. Committee. Yeah, without question. Adam Schiff. Although it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, because one of the things that's required is at the end of the Intelligence Committee's work, it is required to submit a report to the Judiciary Committee. Yes. And then the Judiciary Committee will hold some kind of proceedings before articles of impeachment, if they are drawn up, are voted on in the Judiciary Committee. That will still happen in Judiciary. And then it would go out to the full House of Representatives. Right. And, there, and there's a difference between you know some of the rights and privileges that the president and his lawyers have with respect to the Judiciary Committee, which is later, versus what's happening now and what will happen over the next few weeks and months in the Intel Committee. So it's a little bit more complicated than it's been before. So here's how I read it high level, but I want to I want to get your feedback on it, which is that they've been doing a process in the Intelligence Committee that feels to me like it's working well, which is they're calling witnesses in, they're doing interviews behind closed doors, sort of deposition style. The Republican and Democratic members of Congress can be there, and they're really gathering evidence, and they're figuring out what information people have and whether or not it's relevant. They're going to let that keep going, Then they're going to have the Intelligence Committee at the end of this do a report, which goes to the Judiciary Committee. At that point, the president and the president's counsel will be able to be involved in the public hearings. The president can ask for witnesses to be subpoenaed to testify, to be deposed. So there's some process at that point in judiciary. Judiciary will run the public hearings, and it's clear that there will be public hearings. And then at that point, The Judiciary Committee will vote, and then it will go to the full House to vote. But they've sort of preserved this process that seems to be working well, while at the same time putting, like, a public aspect where the Republicans, one of their big complaints was due process, due process. It's not legally true that there's been any violation of process rights, but this is definitely a nod to me to give the public a sense of, 
here's how we're doing it, here's how it works, here's the voice that everybody gets to have, and it's not going to be one-sided for long. This is just right now a fact-finding mission, and then we're going to turn to a different process. Well, you know, in my view, it hasn't been one-sided at all. You know, there's a privilege you get from being in the majority, right? For large periods of time under the Obama administration, the Republicans were in the majority. I worked in the United States Senate, half of my time in the minority, half of my time in the majority. When I was in the minority, my boss, Senator Schumer, could not hold a hearing on anything he wanted. He could not get a witness necessarily if he wanted. It was all done by the chair of the of the district committee or the chair of the subcommittee. When we became members of the majority, then we called the shot. That's true in Benghazi. That's true with the U.S. attorney firings. That will be true here. That's been true of all the prior impeachments as well. They just have a little less ability to guide things because they're in the minority. My favorite part of all of this is something we've talked about before, but we should spend a little bit more time on it now that we've seen the parameters in the House resolution, I think will generate some light, not just heat, going forward, because one provision of the resolution allows for lengthy questioning, not five-minute, you know, quick circus-like questioning, but lengthy questioning up to 90 minutes at either the start of the hearing or throughout on the part of only the chair, Adam Schiff, and the vice chair, Devin Nunes. And on top of that, both of them can delegate questioning to a member of the staff of the Intelligence Committee. And I'll make a prediction. You ready for my prediction? I'm ready. There's a gentleman named Dan Goldman who is about to become a household name. And Dan Goldman is a former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, worked for me, did a lot of securities cases. And before that, he was one of the supervisors of the organized crime unit. You may have seen him as a commentator once he left that office on MSNBC. I did a panel with him for the Brennan Center once. Yeah, Smart, tough, will ask a lot of good questions. Great lawyer. And I expect that you'll see him as the lead lawyer for Adam Schiff asking a lot of questions. I think Schiff himself, as a former AUSA, has a, has a decent ability to ask questions and is very good at it. So I don't know how much they'll share that. But in the same way we saw Barry Burke do it with Corey Lewandowski at the end of a long hearing, you're going to start seeing some of that at the beginning of a hearing before they go back to the five-minute circus. I could not agree more that I think this is one of the most important things to come out, which is that right now they've said each side, so the chair of the committee and the ranking member of the committee, will each get up to 45 minutes to do this. And again, it's so important for being able to get momentum and to pursue a line of inquiry that otherwise, within five minutes... Witnesses can stall. They cannot answer questions. And it's really hard to get any information out. That's a problem when you're talking about these kinds of hearings where you've got to get evidence out. You've got to give the American public information. You don't want it to be all partisan speechifying. So what you'll have is, I mean, you can imagine that on important hearings, the first 45 minutes will be Chairman Schiff and or Dan Goldman or someone else on the staff asking a series of questions, getting a lot of testimony elicited, telling a clear story where there will be probably the best of the things that that witness is going to say. You know why? Because they have the benefit, in most cases, of having taken many hours of deposition testimony from that witness. So they can go in a targeted way and do all the highlights in 45 minutes, then take a break, and then the other side goes. So a lot of the sentiment that will, I think, attach to these hearings and what the witnesses are saying will be molded by what happens there as opposed to a confusing ping pong battle that normally happens. Yeah. Can I ask two questions about sort of what happened last week that I've been mulling over? The first is that we've been talking a lot about will Pelosi call a vote? Will she call a vote? When will she call a vote? Is it a coincidence that she called it the same week as Lieutenant Colonel Vidman's testimony went before the House? What do you think made her do it last week? You know, I don't know. I had some difference of opinion with folks, including George Conway, a few weeks ago. I thought all along it made sense for her to have a vote to take away the talking point and to be consistent with, not that you have to, but to be consistent with the prior three times, Johnson, Nixon, and Clinton, where there was some vote to sort of make clear what the process was going to be. My guess is all along, she was thinking in the back of her head about having such a vote, and maybe they wanted to get a good amount of evidence, you know, squared away and reach a a critical mass of information before they started making things public. But it's it's a pretty short period of time. A month and a week. I mean, they've moved very quickly. 
it's clear to me that they didn't come up with this entire process plan in a day. It's very complicated and it's clearly well thought through. So I don't think it was just they heard Vindman and they decided to drop it. But there was something about Vindman's testimony, and we'll talk about him, I know, later, where he's on the call. He personally raises red flags at the time. He believes there's a quid pro quo. There was something that sort of pulled together a lot of the different threads that we've been hearing during these inquiries, or at least that's becoming public, that I thought was really powerful. So I thought her timing was actually pretty good. I mean, here's the other thing that may have been going on. I don't know. As we said, you know, there's a lot of jockeying within a caucus, and it may have taken some time. I think that you make an excellent point. It may take a few weeks to sort of negotiate between and among the various chairs who are all constituents of hers to see, well, is everyone going to be okay with Adam Schiff taking the lead? Is Jerry Nadler going to be upset? What about these other committees? And you negotiate that. Sometimes even within your own caucus, you got to figure out what, what is going on there. Right. And Jerry Nadler is the chair of the Judiciary Committee, right. so he'll get his day. But I agree with you. It's, you know, it's important that Schiff, who heads intelligence, He's definitely been given the leadership role. He's had it, and they've they've sort of cemented that for the investigation. I mean, the thing that Nancy Pelosi does is she keeps her troops in line. And she counts votes. And she counts votes. And as late as the morning of or the, or the day before the vote was held, I believe Kellyanne Conway went on television and said, well, you know, I don't know, maybe Nancy doesn't have the votes. Of course she does. Yep. So here's my second question for you, which is, I've been thinking a lot about this. So the Republican pushback of the entire inquiry has, it's changed on the substance, right? Their their defenses have changed a lot. Multiple times. <laughs> Multiple times. But the <laughs> one thing that they really sort of, you know, stayed true to and pushed hard was this process issue of, you know, the process isn't fair. We don't like the process. There's due process problems. Now, I think you and I agree that there's actually no legal process issue here, but I'm very supportive of Pelosi coming out and saying, here's the process. So everybody knows it and understands it. It's completely transparent. The Republicans are still arguing process. So we we both predicted this would happen, which is like, you know, the classic bully, you give them half your lunch, they eat the other half. Like, they're never going to stop arguing process. Here's my question for you. I think process is an issue for courts, not for juries, right? My experience is the following, that people litigate process all the time. The police didn't seize my evidence correctly. And those types of things happen in courts of law because judges understand what the law is, what the process should be. And when the process has been violated, courts are quick to basically say, no, there has to be a process. But when it comes to the actual substance, People want to know what the substance is. Did someone, you know, steal the loaf of bread? They're less worried about, well, who recovered that loaf of bread by the side of the road and could it have been done better? And again, I'm not saying process doesn't matter enormously, but the people who sit on juries and the American public, ultimately, when they sit in judgment, I think are going to worry more about the substance than the process. But what do you think? So I have two reactions to that. One, you're absolutely right. The process generally doesn't matter so long as the process was generally fair and the government can argue, look, This is how we did it. You know, maybe the chain of custody, as we like to talk about it in court, was not perfect, but here's the affidavit showing and, you know, the cocaine was transferred in this way and maybe we lost a document, but here's why we lost the document. But if it's generally, you know, deemed to be fair, the argument doesn't work. On the other hand, if there's an egregious flouting of process, if someone believes that there was a particular person brought before the jury whose rights were violated in a, in a very serious way, even though it's been adjudicated before, because you're allowed to relitigate that. Yep. You know, the way the cop came up to them, how early in the morning it was, if they yelled, if they threatened violence, all those kinds of things can make a difference. My second point is, which we'll be talking about a lot, a distinction between a juror in a regular criminal trial and the putative jurors you have here who are United States senators. By my count, I think there's six senators, and I wrote about this in my note last week, comparing it to the scene from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. In a real criminal trial, every single senator would be struck for cause because oh, they're true. all they're yeah. all yeah. on one side or the other. Yeah. 
They violate all the principles of what a neutral jury should be. Yep. They have they have looked at the evidence. They have prejudged it in many cases. They can't keep an they, open mind. They will look at the press. They will follow the press every day very closely before they're asked to you know sit in judgment on it. They've taken positions on the president. Six of them are running against the president of the United States. Right. So there's a deep personal interest in whether or not Donald Trump gets impeached or not impeached or convicted. You want to strike them for cause. Yeah, they'd, a they'd, all, they'd all be, they'd all be yeah. struck. So. Yep. We should have no illusions that this is notwithstanding the, you know, the somber intoning of some senators trying to avoid answering the question, well, I may sit in judgment on this. I'm a, I'm a juror. You're not. Right. It, I, it's a I different agree process. completely. I think to me, the bigger question is the American public, because I think ultimately members of Congress work for us. And so this is a very helpful conversation also, because I do feel strongly about setting out the process and having it be clear. And I think to your point, it really does in many ways take the issue off the table, what Pelosi has done, because she's made it clear of here are the rules. We're being fair to both sides. The president gets to come in and have some involvement in the Judiciary Committee and then obviously in the full trial. But now it's clear that there's a process to be followed. And so I, I think that's really important. But to your point, the senators, when I think about the jury, I'm thinking about, you know, the American public Public understanding what's happening versus the senators. And you're right about them. So central to that is another point that we'll probably be making a lot. And that is on any issue that exists in the world, no matter how clear you think it is, there is an argument that can be made and they can be of a high quality or they can be of a very low quality. So the argument about process was of a certain quality before Nancy Pelosi had the vote. They're continuing to make the argument and saying, you know, it's fruit of the poisonous tree and it continues to, you know, to be unfair. It is now a less good argument. And you know, I'll give you an example of arguments that can be made no matter what the facts are. And they don't have to be credited and they would be credited by fewer people the stupider the argument is. One other thing that's happening as early as today is some of these behind closed door deposition transcripts are going to be released. I think maybe a couple today and probably over the next number of days. And they probably will be devastating to the president's case and to the president's allies. And what Donald Trump is now setting up through tweets and otherwise is an argument that Adam Schiff is going to be doctoring those transcripts and they're not going to be the right transcripts. So he's setting in motion a belief among his allies that Adam Schiff is a liar and will change the transcripts, which I find incredibly ironic. There's a lot of irony here, given that the one argument Donald Trump has been making about the transcript, the supposed transcript of the call between him and Zelensky is it's a verbatim transcript. Just read the transcript. And literally the document says at it the is top, not a transcript. This right. is not a verbatim transcript. Yeah. Yeah. So truth means nothing to Donald Trump. It means nothing to his allies. But here's what's important about the committee hearings. These will be transcripts. So this is important we'll to note. It. We'll all see it. Yeah. What happens with the conversation between Trump and Zelensky is that they have some person. I mean, you and I just went through this process because I think it's incredible for both of us to believe that there's no actual voice recording of the call, which it turns out there isn't. Instead, there's somebody who's saying what Trump has said into voice recognition software, which we've all used and is obviously like Siri never gets it right, at least for me. <laughs> um, and then there's someone saying what the other person on the line is saying. And then there are lots of people who've taken notes and they're fixing and creating this memorandum based on that. So that call is definitely not a transcript. This, these committee hearings, there's a process for transcribing witnesses. These are reliable as transcripts. They're real transcripts. So you're right there are to court point reporters out. And there are other yes. people there. But you make a good point, which is that the truth is not of concern to the president. It's his ability to basically say, you can trust me and my memorandum of the call, but that other stuff is shifty Adam Schiff. Don't trust any of it. And so he's trying to draw this line and it's not credible. He plays offense constantly and everyone should be on the lookout for this, that we're about to enter this time period where every day he's going to be playing offense on something to try to not play defense on this and to try to distract from it. At the end of the day, sometimes there's devastating proof. You can always argue with lesser ability, even if there's videotape evidence and a confession, and wiretaps that show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. 
the last refuge is always to say, well, that's doctored. That's yes. fake. Yes. We were just talking For about it with day, the 302s. Yeah, but we, we were just talking about this with the FBI 302s. I've heard it a million times in trials. The last defense is often they made it up to, to prove guilt. And by the way, on top of all that, it's the general practice. I presume it's done here for this very reason, that witnesses get to come back in depositions that I took and that I oversaw and that I, that I defended also. The witness gets a transcript of the testimony and has an opportunity to suggest changes if it thinks it doesn't reflect the actual testimony. That's right. That's really important. And here's one other thing that's also important, which is that you have both Democratic and Republican lawmakers who are sitting in the room. And so if they don't think it's accurate, they can also speak out. So the idea that what's going to be released will not be accurate is is not going to be true. Yeah. And, and we already know from reporting that Ambassador Gordon Sondland has returned to a committee room to review some of his testimony potentially to alter. Can I tell a quick story? Yeah, please. Um, when I was overseeing an investigation of politicization of the Justice Department when I was in the Senate, there was one witness who testified for many, many hours on a Sunday and then came back with his lawyer and reviewed the testimony. And before we concluded the testimony, I think I asked, you know, are there any changes you want to make? And his, Or maybe his lawyer interrupted and said, you know, before we conclude, my client wants to make one amendment to his testimony. Okay. And he'll appreciate this. Time and time again, the witness said, I don't recall. One reason you say you don't recall is because you don't recall. Another reason is it's a little bit harder to be hit up on perjury uh-huh. yep. because it's harder to prove you didn't know as opposed to saying a flat yes or no to a question. And there's one spot in the transcript that the lawyer and the client had found on page 300-something of the transcript. It says, with respect to line 7 on page 326, where the witness said no, what he meant to say was, I don't recall. <laughs> <laughs> it was the one in the... And then usually... You sign at the end of the transcript, and yeah. that denotes your happiness with and comfort with the transcript. Yeah. So I that never, argument's not I never like the do not recall for what it's worth. I used to tell the officers and agents who testified for me, like, that's not how people talk. Like, when your wife says, did you remember to get the milk? You don't say, I don't recall. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, you did or you didn't, or so, oh, I, forgot, damn, I forgot, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I am always on alert for that language. Or if you're... Maybe in the Trump house, I was like, yeah, it's in the fridge. The milk's in the fridge. No, <laughs> that's milk. Adam Schiff altered the label. Exactly. <laughs> Should we talk about the nature of the vote? Yeah, the let's numbers? talk about this. So, so the vote occurred, and it's 232 to 196. I hope you've enjoyed this sample of the Cafe Insider podcast. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. 